An organization called Service to the Citizen recently handed out dozens of awards to federal officials. At the very top of the list, though, was my next guest. Alex Stripapatana is Director of Data and Evaluation at the Health Resources and Services Administration, and he joins me now. Mr. Stripapatana, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And exactly what does the Director of Data and Evaluation do at HRSA? Let's start there. Well, it's a very privileged position. I get to work with four teams within my division. If you think of the data lifecycle from the inception of a data point to being able to tee up our organizations to report on those data points with a level of accuracy and quality, that would be one team. The next part is once we have those data in our system, the analytical processes that are applied so that we can see if there are any particular trends or opportunities to enhance the program or better invest resources or deploy interventions. That would be the next part of my work and the second team. The third part of the team is the dissemination aspect. So once we have data in our system, we've done some really good analyses. We've looked at potential trends. We've identified some opportunities. We then have the privilege of sharing those data points with various folks, the public, folks who are policymakers, certainly folks within the Bureau that make decisions about the program. And so our dissemination team, their primary work is making sure that we are sharing this information in a way that is digestible and applicable ready to use across the continuum of data users. And then finally, the, the fourth team is our data modernization team. And, and that aspect of my work is, how do we make these data points better? How do we improve the efficacy of the data? How do we improve the application of the data, improve the utility? How do we improve efficiency? How do we make life easier for our health centers to report on the data so that they can spend more time with their patients and rightfully so? So that's sort of the four areas of my division, and I get to oversee these teams and their work. All right. And so you might say then that the ultimate purpose of the data that's gathered, processed, disseminated, and then used and analyzed in some way really results in service to the 30 million people that are underserved that might use HRSA facilities to obtain their health care. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I know that we take each data point very seriously. So we know that it represents a life, a community, a person. We care for those data in a way that we would care for people. And we make sure that we are telling the stories of our patients and our organizations that care for those patients. Now, the organizations that provide health care in those often rural and underserved areas, they are not federal facilities, but they're people operating under the auspices of HRSA. What mechanism do you have to ensure that they're receiving the data that you're sending them and the analysis, and that they use that in some way to say, how are we doing here with respect to the ultimate delivery of health care? It, it is quite a dynamic relationship. It's quite bi-directional. So as a mandate of participation in the health center program, they have to deliver data to us on an annual basis. These data are called the uniform data system data, and it covers a gamut operational things about these facilities, as well as the patients that they serve, their staffing, their financial situation and the like. So again, through our processes, we do a series of analyses, and then we push these data in aggregate form back out into the public where these health centers could also be consumers. So they can see their own data. They can compare their data with other like health centers or other primary care facilities that are delivering care to the healthcare safety net. 
And I imagine that as you see the data kind of come round and round again, I guess it gets more detailed and maybe more valuable with each round trip cycle, to put it crudely. There might be trends that HRSA can notice that you could maybe disseminate to everyone and saying, hey, we're finding that in these instances of this use of this procedure or this new drug, this is what tends to happen with these people or whatever, and then everybody can get in on it. Exactly. Exactly. We do our very best to push these data out into the public forum for all sorts of potential patients of health centers, again, policymakers, academics, the health centers themselves. Just like you were mentioning, data is very cyclical, and I think that we have opportunities to improve data collection, data reporting through each iteration, and as well as, um, more importantly, how do we better inform these organizations, how do we better inform this program to better serve the patients' communities. We're speaking with Alec Stripipatana. He is Director of Data and Evaluation at the Health Resources and Services Administration. And how did you come to this work? You've been at HRSA a few years now. Yes, sir. I've been privileged to be working for the Bureau of Primary Health Care for about 10 years now. Quite honestly, it was a stroke of luck. I was actually on faculty at the University of California, Los Angeles. I happened to be at a meeting in Washington, D.C., at that time, there was a call out for opportunities to work for the Bureau of Primary Health Care. I happened to meet the director of, at that time. My predecessor was actually at this meeting. We got to talking and saw some mutual career goals, professional goals, aspirations. And she said, you know what? How would you like to work for us? And I said, that would be a wonderful idea. And so made sure to see if it was okay with the missus to move our family from California to Washington, D.C., and every day has been better since the last. And over the years, have you seen an uptake in both medical practitioners, administrators of healthcare, and maybe even patients themselves, greater willingness or even understanding of why they need to use data in the execution of their duties or in picking a place to get healthcare? Absolutely. You know, I think as a society as a whole, we've become more data-informed, folks in decision-making, whether you're a consumer or a provider of services, you can track data trends. You can see where there are certain procedures that are more effective than others or certain clinical workflows that might be more effective than others. And then you can see those data in aggregate form through performance on clinical quality measures, let's say, um, that have very, their, their standard ways of reporting clinical care or clinical outcomes with very defined numerators and denominators, specifications on inclusion and ex exclusion criteria. All that to say is there are a nice way to be able to benchmark where you're at, where you want to be in current state or future state. And of course, the data warehouse is right there on the homepage of HRSA. It's really open to the public. It's not just the professional community that can access this data. What kind of uptake do you get on the data warehouse and do you monitor who's looking at what? Absolutely. I mean, we do get to see interfaces. We don't get specifics on who exactly is interfacing with the HRSA data warehouse, but we actually see the hits, the number of hits. And we see the number of hits grow over time as the word gets out on this information, as well as folks' familiarity and comfortability with using and engaging data. I will say that the various teams that are involved with pushing data out into the public sphere are quite conscientious in pushing data out in a way that is user-friendly across a spectrum of users, from your more layperson to your more sophisticated academic. 
And just a final question, in your day-to-day work, you interact with people doing data, but what about the medical side? Absolutely. You know, we do get opportunities to go visit our health centers for various reasons. In my line of work, what I'll do is I'll be deployed to a health center to see their clinical workflows, their data workflows, and see if there are opportunities to enhance data quality, data reporting, or reduce the burden of reporting these data. And it's a wonderful opportunity to get to talk with providers, really see what's happening behind the scenes. You know, we do take these data points quite seriously because they do help inform the program, but it's very good to keep in mind exactly how data are getting charted, how they're being entered into an electronic health record system, an EMR. So it's quite insightful. And one of the best parts of doing a site visit and, and seeing our health centers is I try and go to these places early and unannounced, and I'll take time and I'll sit in the waiting room. You learn a lot about the organization, about the communities that we serve, just by looking at the dynamics between the front desk staff and the patients, how they're greeted, how they're treated with respect, how they're engaged, the pictures that are in a waiting room. It's wonderful. Interesting. And, well, to follow up quickly, the centers that we're talking about, these healthcare delivery centers, these are not primitive places where, you know, there's an old enamel white counter and this kind of thing. These are fairly modern. They would look in place in any of the great suburban settings, too. Well, I will say that there are a host of health centers and they fall on a continuum, depending on their environment, right? So I think for perspective, we have nearly 1,400 healthcare organizations or health centers, parent organizational health centers that represent over 14,000 delivery sites. This is across the United States, stretching into the Pacific as well as the Atlantic. So given the context, you will see very sophisticated health centers, very sophisticated health centers. And HRSA does a great job in investing in these organizations to be able to update their care delivery environments and the like. Alec Sripapatana is Director of Data and Evaluation at the Health Resources and Services Administration, also an award winner from the Service to the Citizens Organization. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor 
in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. 
And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.